0: I'm Wayne Rubin and I want to welcome you to the podcast Hard Yards in Leadership where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day everyone welcome to this episode of Hard Yards in Leadership. Well for any regular listeners you'd know that In recent months, we've been exploring leadership journeys from leaders in a whole variety of different um, walks of life, from uh, entrepreneurs and founders to uh, crusty old souls like me who've had decades of leadership in multinationals and so on. We've had people with community leadership, uh, not-for-profits, education sector, all sorts of different areas. My guest today, David Neal, his predominant leadership experience came from the, the military, he had lots of leadership opportunities in school and sport and so on, but he went through officer training and, and quickly found himself in active duty in Afghanistan and that's where leadership, you know, really, really hits the, hits the road, right? I mean, you literally in life-or-death situations and it didn't go well. We'll be exploring some of the challenges he faced and some of the things that went wrong literally from the very first day of active duty in Afghanistan Talking to him about some of the styles of leadership that he learned from working in the military and really diving deep into some of the disastrous results he experienced when he was putting off dealing with someone who really wasn't up to scratch, but he continued to put that off as we all do sometimes. And it turned into a really critical situation on the active battlefield. David is an insightful. Guy with fantastic stories to share and so many lessons for us all. I know you're going to enjoy listening to David and without any further ado, let me say welcome, David. Mate, it's an absolute pleasure. It's
1: been a long time coming and um, I'm glad to be here today. Uh, we had a couple of little technical hurdles to get over to get this going, but here we are. And so I'm uh, I'm very excited.
0: Well, the podcast is called Hard Yards in Leadership, so it's appropriate we had a couple of hard yards to make this happen, right?
1: Effort-based reward: the harder something is, the better the dopamine. So
0: here we are. I'll take it. <laughs> Fantastic, Dave. As you know, we we always like to explore elements of of people's different leadership journey. And to get going, what I'd really appreciate is if we go back to the early part of of your life or career when you first found yourself in some role where you realised you had leadership responsibility. Can you think when that was and tell us about that, please?
1: Yeah look, I'd say it was incremental. I did I did a lot of sport when I was a kid. I did everything from karate and I did that incrementally more and worked up through the ranks and took a bit of a um, a leadership position in at the I guess the child level. When I was doing that, I went into the Australian team and so there were responsibilities associated with with that line of effort. I used to play volleyball. I used to do, you know, badminton on and off with the rest of my family and whatnot. So, sport was a big part of that. I guess formally, my leadership positions would have kicked off when I first joined the military back in 2006. And that was really where the formal aspect of leadership training, having gone through the officer corps and thinking about these topics in greater and greater detail and pressure testing them in team environments and being graded on them quite. Uh, religiously, I think that's probably where my leadership journey and I guess my understanding started to get pressure tested to the point
0: where it became more of a passion. And when you when you talk about being a leader in in sport as a kid and kind of through those different levels, because it sounds like you, you got to some you know fairly significant levels in in your sporting life, what lessons did you take on through that period that you came to realise were actually good lessons as you became you know more formally a career leader yeah look I I
1: might have a different take on this to to some other people but I think one of the things I learned early was that very rarely is there a right or wrong option there's just myriad of shit options available to you and you get to pick your poison so to speak you get to pick your path And even, you know, I used to be the captain of state volleyball teams and little baby, little responsibility, I call them baby responsibilities. But I think, you know, you would have to zig or you'd zag. And if you zigged, you know, there's a whole myriad of opportunities associated with that. But there's definitely a cost. There's always a cost. If you zag, equal amount, but in a different array. And you, you would have to pick your path and you would have to contextualize for the team why you're zigging instead of zagging or zagging instead of zigging. And I also, I guess, by association realize that very rarely will you make everyone happy. It's not necessarily about happiness, but it is about contextualizing. People will do things for you if they trust and respect you as an individual. They might not enjoy doing it. And I think that's a topic that needs to be pulled apart. They might not enjoy it, but they'll do it with you and they'll also gain value having done it. I think I learned that relatively early enough that, you know, the utopian idea of you'll pick the right answer and everyone will be happy and you will have solved the problem. It's like, yeah, it just gets replaced with another problem and then we've got to grind our way through that one. I think I figured that out early enough and that was very helpful to go into the military from a resilience perspective because it's like, ah, it's never really going to get that you're never going to get the perfect solution. So don't look for that. Go for more of an improvement than perfection. I think that I, I got that early. And I was very fortunate that my father was quite a profound leader in his own right, particularly in the public service, rising quite and, and my mum as well. They both were. And so they had a natural intuition and a good way of asking questions to kind of shape me along that path. And I was very appreciative of that, particularly retrospectively.
0: That's really interesting to hear, Dave. And then let's start to sort of move into into your military phase because you said that's kind of where, you know, kind of your first professional level of, of leadership came. And let me just preface by saying that I'm conscious that most of most of our listeners on the podcast more come from the world of business. And often people in the world of business, leadership lands upon people and, at times that they didn't necessarily expect. And I guess it's not really like that in, in, in the military, is it? It's a bit of both. I guess if you're going to get led
1: into the stream that is the officer stream by definition you're going to be expected to have leadership qualities and traits and there's a lot of filtering to get you I guess to the start line and then you're surrounded by a disproportionately high representation of leaders in the form of officers and so you you build yourself into that world and and so there's that formal line where expectation wise you would expect that but you know, there's a big difference between I think authority and influence and you know what your position or your title might hold, you might have all these roles and responsibilities, and they're your leadership responsibilities if you're in that officer stream. But there's this informal world, it's like the favor economy, it's like the mates' rates, it's all the stuff that the, yeah. that sits in this cloud in the background yeah. that's yeah. very hard to measure. And I think that's really where the game of influence is played. And I think that one you will find things that jump up on onto your lap that you just weren't expecting. You will have responsibilities that you just weren't forecasting for. You're going to have to invest a phenomenal amount of time in it. And it's very difficult to measure success at each level in that influence cloud. And I think that side of it, that's a different beast. I think there's all sorts of ambiguity and fog of war in that, but there's a lot of opportunity as well. So it's a bit of both. And to that point, there's kind of, I, I would say that there's a, a belief by many that in the military, you just get told to do something and then you just go do it, It's like robots, you know, robots ordering robots. And that, you know, because it's so discipline focused that if you just say it, it'll happen. Not so true, not so much, because there's a lot of power at an individual level in the ambiguity. You might have authority and you say, this needs to be done, you do this, you do this, you do this, it might get done, but you're certainly not gonna get it done with the pizzazz and the uptake that you might need elsewhere. Moreover, if you're just using authority and someone tells you to run out of machine gun nest and take that machine gun nest, you're like, I'll take the charge. I don't like you, I don't trust your abilities, I don't trust the planning, I think I'm gonna die, who cares, you can charge my dead body, I, you know? So it's like, there's, there's an authority level and then there's this influence space where you go, I don't wanna let this person down. I respect them, they've looked after me, they know my family, they're a friend, they're a brother, they're a sister. And I don't want them to have to do this because I didn't want to do it. You know, I didn't wanna let my mates down. And so it's very fear induced. It's like, it's anchored in a double negative. I didn't wanna let a bad thing happen to someone I love. And I think that space of influence is not very well represented or understood about military leadership. And I would say that's where most stuff gets done. Moreover, because you've got a a very bureaucratic and policy-driven organization because it needs that structure to keep moving, people get very good at using policy against policy, particularly if they don't like a person. They can weaponize it back. It can be weaponized down and it can be weaponized back up. And so you don't want to get in that game. And so, I think that's probably a misconception that many people have about the military. I would say that there is a whole economy of people that get that in the military, and there are some that don't, and they pay a hefty price. Their careers don't progress. They don't have people sponsoring them in forums they
0: can't represent themselves, and they really do it as a disservice to themselves. Yeah, that's amazing. And there's so many things to unpack from from all of that that you're sharing with us, Dave. And and I guess much of what we're going to be speaking about from here on forth is going to be relevant to... or Taking lessons from from your time in the military. So, for the listeners, let's just do a pause on the deep dives, and can I ask you just to do a quick kind of summary of what your career in the military looked like? Just just take us through that path, please.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I went through that officer stream. So, in the military, there's two kind of streams that really bridge from the top. One is this officer uh, leadership stream, and then there's the what we call the uh, non commissioned officer stream. So that's the soldiers. Both will develop their own leadership hierarchies. So it's not that one is a leader group and one is not. It's right. quite the opposite. But soldiers will be more doers. So they're the people on the tools. They learn uh, you know, technical trades. They do um, very specialist things. And then over time, they will work up. They'll go up through their own rank system. But running parallel to it is an officer stream. And they're more geared towards planning, preparation, strategy, and also acceptance of accountability and risk. So they have largely more authority, but conversely, they have to accept more overt and personal and organisational risk. So these two streams, the leader might be in any category because leader's not positional, but generally there's a lot more leadership training, formal leadership training into the officer stream to guide, and there's a lot less of them in the military. So I went down that path. I went through the Australian Defence Force Academy, which is in Canberra. I did my three years there. I went Army, obviously, as opposed to Navy and Air Force, which are the other two services. I went to the Royal Military College, which is all Army specific. And then I went Infantry Corps, so foot soldiers, generally speaking. And then I I, I went and I deployed to Afghanistan for what would consist of about a double trip kind of jammed together. So that was an 11-month combat operation and then I rolled into some weird and quirky roles. Was a visual tracker up in Cairns, which was a largely indigenous unit. I then jumped into an all-core posting and was kind of like the head of HR slash the pit bull for the commander in a logistics unit. I did some time in Townsville in the Combat Training Centre as an observer trainer basically rolling people in and out of exercises and getting them ready for deployments and operations, high budget, high yield training models and whatnot. Uh, And then I spent some time in a planning space at the joint operations room in divisional headquarters, which, you know, runs operations all around the world, I think kind of like a secret box inside a box, inside a box, inside a box. doing Planning behind the scenes and trying to get what we'd call flyaway teams out and running all these different operations simultaneously and trying to nest them all together. And then in there, you know, there's coming in and out of different spaces as well. So everything from kind of lots of stuff on hands-on tools all the way through to conceptual planning and strategy and, and kind of everything in between. Yeah, so it's kind of a little bit of a snapshot of, of my world. There's
0: certainly a, a lot of different experiences in there and, and lots that I'm sure the listeners are going to want to hear, hear lots more about what i'd love to do dave is is maybe you know cuz we we want to explore some of your hard yards and that, you know that's what people love to hear on the on the show so i'm going to ask you to jump into in the first instance the early phase of your leadership career within the military and perhaps if you can think to any times when you were using your leadership skills but you realised that things weren't working the way they were supposed to. The leadership wasn't, wasn't going to plan.
1: That's my bread and butter, mate. I've got no stories of mess-ups and no moral high ground to judge anyone, frankly. Look, I'll give you one one example that I often use when I'm talking to different groups and whatnot. So when I jumped out of the Royal Military College and I went into the School of Infantry, I did my infantry-specific training, I was given a platoon and I was basically given a relatively short amount of time, about four, maybe just slightly over four months of time in order to get them operationally ready in order to deploy to Afghanistan. I was only 22 years old at the time and I had about somewhere between 38 and 42 soldiers, depending on how you broke it down. The implications of that were, you know, the soldiers that I was to lead were a lot older than me in some instances and many had come off the back of East Timor and Iraq, so they were experienced and I had a variation in terms of some of the supporting leaders in the form of corporals that I would be working with in order to manage this workforce of about 40 people. I would say I didn't do that particularly well and I'll, I'll go more specific in what I mean by that. So I was, I was, the context matters. I was 22. I was a doer. I was a person who doesn't like letting people down. I had 100% drank the Kool Aid on you know leadership and particularly servant leadership. Like it's a I know it's a tough gig. You absorb as much as you can at the leadership level. And I had identified one particular corporal who I know wasn't up to speed. I knew it in my gut. Other people knew it, whether they said it or didn't say it, lacked a bit of confidence, lacked a bit of technical experience. He had done previous deployments before, but he, you know, retrospectively and with the benefit of hindsight, I'd say he didn't have the the sort of personality or temperament which would be synonymous with someone of that position and and arguably didn't have the experience it's not his fault and I certainly would never have a crack at him in that regard it was more you know after these cycles of deployments or, you know Timor Iraq we lose a lot because people leave and they go I'm not doing that again I've tick that box I'm going to go be a family person I'll go to sibby street or whatever and so we lose a lot of leadership and doers and then we have to grow them very very quickly from the bottom up he was one of those cases, and I think we accelerated him too quickly. The so what being, I had this gut feeling where I was like, ah, I'm going to have to train him up. I'm going to have to spend a lot of time. Yeah. But in the build up to these sorts of deployments, it's like very, very busy days. I mean, the f- days are full, and, and I mean, like, you know, the 12 to 14 to sometimes 18 hour days, back to back to back to try and do all the training courses required to deploy. Think, you know, bomb detection, you know, route selection, things to do with first aid, language training, cultural training, you know, on tools training, weapons, blah, blah, blah. blah. Like it's a big, there's a big scope of work to be done and there's not a lot of time, so to speak. And I kept pushing it off. I knew I needed to have a conversation Mm. um, with my OC and I'm very, very good friends with that same OC now. An OC is an officer in, in command, so a major in this instance, I had a phenomenal amount of respect for him and I didn't want to let him down. And in doing so, I kept pushing it off. Oh, I'll be able to fix it. I'll, I'll coach him up. I've still got time. I've still got time. And that 110 days or so just went like that. It was just done. Yeah. And before I knew it, I was in a situation where I am um, I've got to Afghanistan, quickly got picked up, put into the next area and moved further and further out into the Badlands, into an area called the Tangi Valley, which – couple of months prior you know just the month prior would later result in medals of gallantry in victoria cross very very busy valley lots and lots of taliban in there and as a result you know the way the cookie would crumble and the puzzle pieces would work out that was the corporal that was standing next to me when we would have our first i would say significant multi-hour gunfight it was my first gunfight as well and so in that regard, I, you know, I'm trying to do the officer thing and I'm trying to like coordinate air assets and, you know, I'm trying to do, you know, make sure the strategy's right and get the enemy picture. I'm trying to think big and, and link back to all the big, all the big bombs and all the big tools and all that sort of stuff and manage my people on, on the ground. But my job's not to manage them at the individual level. I don't want to be like soldier X, you need to be near that tree and that's not the level I need to be at. I need to be a bit higher than that and doing the overall overarching plan for the for the battlefield. When it all kicked off, he froze. And then I found myself in this weird situation, which I had promised since day one. You know, they're talking about don't micromanage, don't micromanage, don't micromanage. And, you know, they call it mission command where you give the boundaries or the rules of the game and then you give them the intent of what you're after. And then you set them loose in that metaphorical or design box. And then they can go have freedom within the boundaries. That's mission command. That's how you deal with complexity at very large scales on a battlefield. And I had to do the one thing that I'd promised I'd never do on my first big fight. and went back down. I'm like, here we go. Like soldier aid. But I knew at that time I'd completely shanked it. I thought about it while this was all happening. I probably should have been more focused on what I was doing, but the thoughts that were popping in my head were all the moments that I could have said a thing <sighs> and had the hard conversation. And it wasn't fair to him as well because I, by me not jumping in, he was kind of trying to do the same thing that I was trying to do to my OC. Didn't want to let me down, you know. He's trying we're all linked on a common value system we're all trying to help each other we're all brothers and sisters trying to you know fight a, a common enemy like he didn't want to let me down and I had it inadvertently or somewhat deliberately and I think now retrospectively put him in that situation and as a disservice to him and then it would cause a chain reactions of events where now the soldiers didn't necessarily trust him as much as they might have and then that caused issues between me pushing work to all the other corporals because I wanted to keep you know, the soldiers safe. So all the dangerous jobs I'm giving to who I thought were the more competent and more experienced corporals at the expense of moving all the danger away from this other group. And then that's causing a fracture within the dynamic within my team too, because it's, look at, it, it's seen as favoritism or at least as a minimum avoidance, which it was. I'm doing it from good intent because I'm like, I just want to keep everyone alive. I don't want to put the wrong person into this situation. And then we have hurt or killed soldiers because that's on me. And so I'm trying to justify this push of work. To, you know, it's essentially performance punishment. The better you were, at something, I'm trying to push it at you because I know you'll you'll get it done. <laughs> but that's also affecting the sustainability of the platoon. And so it caused this chain reaction of events that, you know, it wasn't all doom and gloom. We had a very capable team. We trained very hard. They were very resilient. That's also important context. It's not like we were just getting our ass handed to us. But I'm thinking what, you know, against what would be an optimal um, situation. And, you know, if you run the, the thread all the way back to the source, there were about three or four, opportunities where if moral courage and fortitude had come into the game i would have put my hand up and said ah i'm not comfortable with this i think we need to get someone else into this position and we would have had enough time to scramble a solution it would have been uncomfortable i would have probably got chipped in some regard for having not detected it earlier whatever i could have absorbed those hits but those hits would have been far less than the reality-based hits that were coming as a result of doing this on tour. And so we eventually came up with solutions on tour that would, would move that problem around and we it all kind of worked out. But it was not through, you know, that's largely through luck, frankly. That wasn't through any good planning of my own. And so, you know, from a leadership perspective, you really do want to have those conversations early you know it's that old adage a stitch in time saves nine it, it's built in, yeah. in a fundamental truth if you avoid things those little fights that you need to have turn into vesuvius level fights that you just uh, you may not win at all you might just get completely crippled by so that's one such example which i think i think some people could learn something from particularly people who don't like conflict and they you know they might rationalize and say hey it's not worth the effort. It'll be fine, you know. Uh, it'll sort itself out. It won't. Things won't fix unless you fix them, and that is a, hopefully a story that might nudge people towards some level of action. That's a
0: wonderful story to share, David. And I think you know something that you you said as you're kind of unpacking that was the realization that you're not having made a decision. Actually, was a decision in itself. It's a decision.
1: There's multiple decisions in there to not do a thing. It's like a, there's a legal term: sin by omission and sin by commission. Sin by commission is when you actively do something to someone and you know as a disservice to them. Sin by omission is when you see something that needs to be done and you do not do it, but it's still a sin. You know, you're still actively doing something even though it has a passive response you know and, and definitely there is a price to pay there's always a price you don't get to get no one can walk away from
0: the price so to speak yeah and I think you know one of the most common conversations I have with business leaders is in, in this exact space you know they recognize someone who's probably not up to the standard. And they kick the can down the road, and kick the can down the road. And, and as you say, often it's an avoidance of conflict. Sometimes it's a blind hope that sort of a bit of a miracle is going to happen, and 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 suddenly this person's going to get it together. In the instance that you shared with us, you took that situation into what you know a combat situation where it's you know it's, it sounds like a throwaway term, but it literally does become a life or death situation. And and the consequence of that becomes so magnified versus the things that we experience in business but the lesson is the same and i think it's a fantastic lesson for listeners in whatever field they may be they may be in currently
1: yeah absolutely and it reminds me of a, a and we we use this as part of our workshops quite frequently is some of the work from John and Julie Gottman and when they did a number of analyses about marriage survivability and small team survivability but predominantly geared towards marriage and You know, I I don't think it's a a piece of work that's very well represented, frankly. People will often refer to the five to one ratio, five positive to one negative, you know, is optimal for marriages and 2.9, three to one is uh, optimal for small teams. And one to one, you know, that's bad. That's a very high fail rate. One positive to one negative is, you know, overly critical, not good enough. And they box that work. You know, they arrive at those deductions, but John and Julie Gottman's work went further than that. And they also identified that if you keep going along that span and you just keep as adding positivity, we reach a point of almost toxic positivity, which is 11 to 1, 11 positive to 1 negative. And then we see that the emergence of the same fail rates is 1 positive to 1 negative. It's a bell curve. And that 11 to one, in my mind, could be characterized or categorized as avoidant. And you're signing up to the same fail rate and fracture for your relationships or your teams as a result of avoiding the discussions that need to happen. It breeds its own form of resentment. It's a different type of resentment, but it's just as potent. And so there may be leaders out there who they know in their gut, and if they're listening to this now, they'll have this, uh, he's probably talking to me moment, where they go, I might be falling prey to that effect, that 11 to 1, overly positive, don't want to rock the boat, You know, I want to be a solutions person, it'll be all right. If you're having those conversations in your head, I'm here to kind of circuit break and say maybe not so much. It's coming back with a vengeance, and you might be paying with interest and so 11 to 1, just as bad as 1 to 1. And that, you know, overly critical, makes sense that it would fracture. Avoidant, very rarely gets discussed with Gottman's work. And it should be because it positivity for positivity's sake is its own virus. And so, yeah, that would be an example where
0: I personally completely got it wrong. You're listening to Hard Yards in Leadership where leaders share the stories of their hardest yards in their leadership journeys. I hope every leader who hears these stories recognizes that the things that they find hard are the same things that the rest of us leaders find hard too. It's my dream that every leader finds the joy in leading. It will help you be a happier person, a better leader for your business, and a better leader for those that you lead. If you like the show, please subscribe, drop us a review, and most importantly, share to others who may benefit from it too. Now back to the show. Let's jump into our little time machine here and, and kind of move forward in your, in your career because it's always interesting to hear about when, when we were new leaders and, and we got it wrong. But often people think that once we become experienced leaders, then we get it. Then the expectation is you get it right all the time. Yeah.
1: The mistakes don't stop;
0: they just <laughs> change. Yeah, they morph. That's my <laughs> career as well. <laughs> so, can I ask you to share a time when you were you were a more mature leader? You're you, you a bit further on in your career, and you can still look back at something and go, "Gosh, I thought I was trying to get it right, but I really ended up getting that one wrong too."
1: Yeah, look, hey, hey, maybe you could go all the way to the end of even my military career. So, the last position I, I was at, I mentioned before, we were in this in the joint operations room. In fact, John O'Clark, the other founder for the eighth mile, we were working shoulder to shoulder. And this is kind of a, a, a cautionary tale, so to speak, about performance. And, you know, it wouldn't be surprising to some that, and for, particularly for those people that have been in high performing teams, that feeling of camaraderie and a connection with a group and then this fierce loyalty and protection to keep it together at the seams. The cautionary tale starts with then what, all right? So in our case, we had the what we called the battle captains or the planning team. It's called the operations function. It's called the three-channel in the military, but they, they're the doers. They're the ones wheeling and dealing, moving levers, picking people up, moving them to places. like they're, they're getting it done. There's a whole bunch of supporting roles that work around this actual delivery point all the way from planning and then through analysis and whatnot. We were at a period of time which we were trying to roll out a whole suite of new emerging technologies to help us manage these very, very complex battle spaces. And we, with good intent considered, now there's no malice or ill intent in in regard to what we did we tried to go down this path of becoming specialists on this, this, this particular suite of technology. And we didn't stop there. We went through to working with the engineers. We were running, I would say at that point, parallel with some of the high functioning operators, even from the designers of the software. And so we were, really took this responsibility on. And in trying to learn it, what we really did was we built this little nexus of high performance but we were kind of, in my opinion, rejected many of the other supporting agencies or supporting stakeholders that were interested in it. And they might not need that same technical knowledge, but we were like, ah, it's our baby, you know, it's our puppy, you know? And and when someone didn't get involved, oh, it built into that narrative, oh, it always leans on us. We had a bit of a victim mentality, I would say, even in this high performing space, where it's like, yeah, of course we know it. We know boats. And we did know this boat. The problem came when a little bit of time lapsed, and then evidently, uh, Jono and I would get a tap on the shoulder saying, It's time to move on. And we were medically discharged. Too many broken bones, you know, snap things and, and whatever, right? A little bit of erosion there, right? And as a result, we moved out of that role and we went into leave the defense. And as we were getting calls retrospectively about, you know, the technology, how does it work? You know, what do we do in these situations? And we were in Civvy Street helping some of our military counterparts. What that means in very, very practical terms is we hadn't trained the next level of leaders on the software. There was a level of ego, Uh I think, associated with it. And there's a lot of energy that comes from ego. If you're good at something, and your influence in that space is you're the subject matter expert on this thing and you know boats, there's a lot of power that comes with that in from a social context. And I think inadvertently we had strayed into that space and we had become the single point of failure for the organisation and we didn't do it as a service to the people that we purported to actually serve And so when we were removed, it kind of gave us an ego boost, like, oh, they're stuffed. They're not going to be able to run that software. It's like, oh, shit, actually, they're stuffed. They're not going to be able to run this thing. And that's not reflective of good leadership in my mind. We hadn't built the next generation of leaders. We had let ego creep into the game And in order to groom our own relevance within that social context, I think we had locked off the doors somewhat. It took me a while after I'd left the fence to come to terms with that. I I hadn't seen the forest for the trees. And I now know that to be true. You know, as time would come out, it's an organization full of leaders. There are other other us's coming into the game. And that's probably another discussion is if you ever think you're not replaceable you probably are it just takes a little bit of time they'll figure it out right (laughs) necessity demands creativity so they'll find a way and so get rid of that ego space but that would be a cautionary tale be mindful that you're not creating silos and single points of failure i mean we were pretty experienced leaders by then we were surrounded by even more experienced leaders Our bosses were amazing leaders and we still fell prey to it. And so the capability cross-referenced against the ego is a very real risk because if you feel safe because you're the only person that knows a thing and then you leave, I would say that that was more ego-based than capability-based and that's not in the spirit of leadership. So I stuff that. Um, I know Jono would agree. We've talked about it ad nauseum, but that's an example of an even more experienced mistake. Yeah, and it's a great
0: example. We we have a lot of founders listen to the show and, and you know, founders typically kind of come into their organisations with, yes, a vision and, and, and a spirit of entrepreneurialism, but they also have a lot of subject matter knowledge. And one of the things that, that we often speak to founders about is the recognition that, you know, things happen in your life. And, you know, we had another guest on, Ali Flynn, who who tells the story of being a founder and starting a business, and suddenly getting very ill and having like wasn't a choice to step away. You're just away, and yeah. and the whole realization that you know part of our responsibility as leaders is to make sure that our business, our team, our organization is set up to survive even if we're not there. And what you're sharing is a really important lesson. With some very interesting self-reflections, I got to say, Dave, too, about kind of the the sense of why you were letting that happen. Because you do sometimes drink in the power sense of how good are we? You know, we're kind of a, 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 at this different level, but you really end up doing a disservice, right? Yeah, well, it it, it links to that, you know that that old phrase,
1: "Power corrupts," absolutely. All, something to that to yeah. that end, right? It, you know, it's yeah.
0: absolute power corrupts absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. It, it,
1: to my mind, it links to that that old phrase. The other thing I would say is this, and this is not a well-discussed topic, I would say, generally speaking, is about rationalization, about that little voice inside your head. That little thing is not your friend. That thing is geared towards keeping you alive. And so it has a negative bias and it's constantly looking for reasons why things will fail, not succeed, including yourself, and it wants to keep you exactly where you are. Okay, from a leadership perspective, it also, in order to achieve that effect of keeping you safe and keeping you where you are, will lean very, very heavily on ego and pride. Because it goes, you know, use that old that example I just used. Hey, you don't need to change anything. We're winning right now. Everyone looks up to us. You're seen as a, you know, a specialist, an SME. You don't need to change anything. We're doing all right. That's what the little voice said. You're killing it. Keep going. Right? And then it rewards it. Boom. It rewards it. And reality wasn't telling me what I needed to hear, which was you're actually, you're becoming part of the problem. Yeah. Yes, you are good at what you do, but it's only while you're in it. Yeah. And, and so this rationalization, that little voice inside your head will guide you down avenues which are not resourceful at all. And you can't drink the Kool-Aid. The biggest danger from a leadership perspective, in my humble opinion, is when people say that wouldn't happen to me. I'm not a leader that does that. The moment you say that, you've put the blinkers on and you're going to miss it and it's going to happen to you. Your brain's going to shift its focus towards, well, that's not a problem anymore. I'll go worry about something that is.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: And yeah. you might be the problem. Yeah, You might have all the best intent in the world. You get up and you're trying to make the world a better place. But in this weird, insidious Devil kind of way, the little rationalization that voice inside your head will guide you where it feels you need to be safest, and that might not be where you need to be. And so, thinking you're not part of the problem is a massive danger for leadership. And history has proven you know, I'm a bit of a history buff, but particularly for military contexts. You know, if you ever want to look at any atrocities, any of the worst things where humanity has gone. Almost without fail, the people that did it were the people that said it wouldn't happen to them. And so be very, very careful judging retrospectively on previous cases or even things that are happening in the world right now. If you can't superimpose yourself into that scenario and genuinely superimpose yourself to the point where you're the person pulling the trigger or doing the thing or, or making the mistake, you are prone to doing it yourself. You have to understand that people have a good and a dark side. And, you know, one is motivation, one's running to, One is, I think, anchored in discipline, running from. It's fear-based. But there is a good and a dark side to everyone. And until you recognize that, you will not be able to play with the complexity across all avenues of people because you just will not have all the tools in the toolbox, so to speak, to be able to deal with it. And that would be my message to to leaders everywhere is be very, very careful of that voice. It is going to
0: guide you where it will keep you. a great lesson. It's a great lesson. Hey, Dave, I'm conscious of time and and I have a concluding question I always love to to ask guests. So I want to imagine you kind of in your normal workspace, you know, your, your life today, you look up there's a wall opposite you. I've given you a bucket of paint and a paintbrush. What do you write on the wall?
1: leadership is not about you nice not about you and that's where the energy comes from is knowing you're doing something that leaves a legacy and in a world i think that's characterized by egocentric focus and entitlement the people that are the most happy right now are the ones that are leaving legacy and are serving purpose they're the ones that look at themselves in the mirror and they actually have something of value
0: so i'd say leadership is not about you that's gorgeous I like it a lot. I Love the sentiment of where it's coming from, Dave. Um, I'm sure there's people listening who would uh, like to hear more of you and and know more about what you do. How do people find you? Yeah, look, so our,
1: our team's called the Eighth Mile Consulting. We're largely ex-veteran organisation. You can catch us on website eighthmile.com.au or on LinkedIn, the Eighth Mile Consulting. Um, we have a, quite a big following on LinkedIn as as an example. We're also on Facebook, Instagram. Yeah, so you type us in, we'll pop up for better or for worse. (laughs) (laughs) We're coming at you. Yeah, we're doing it right there. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Dave, this has been amazing. It's been fantastic listening to um, some of your shares and, and the insights that you have. And, and I'm sure everyone listening to the podcast today has got a tremendous amount of value from it. And I'd just say a huge thank you. Really appreciate it. It's been fantastic.
1: Wayne, the, the, the pleasure's all mine. I feel very privileged to uh, be having a conversation with yourself. And as I said, it's been a long time coming and I, I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do and keep believing in yourself as a leader.